Welcome to the Victory Orlando Church Podcast. We are so glad you decided to join us. We want to help you to know God, find freedom, and discover your divine purpose so that you can make a difference with your life. We pray this message encourages you, inspires you, brings you hope, and builds your faith. And there's a section of the Bible called the Gospels. It's the first four books of the New Testament. Um, the Bible, for those that don't know, the Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and then the New Testament. The, the Old Testament's the front of the Bible, and the New Testament's the back half of the Bible. And as the New Testament begins, we see Jesus entering on the scene, how Jesus was born and all that kind of stuff. And the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus, is recorded in uh, four books, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and that's the, the life of Jesus. And as you read your Bible, most likely, whether it's a printed Bible or whether you have the free version Bible app, um, you, the words of Jesus are often in, printed in red letters. And so that's why uh, we call the series Red Letter Stories, because when Jesus would preach to people, he would use stories um, he, would, he would tell stories about modern day life. And for them in that day and time, it was like about farming and about fishing and about uh, things like that. And we probably aren't very many farmers in the room. Anybody? Farmer? No. But we all enjoy what farmers do. Come on, when we go out to eat, we like to eat food and uh, hamburgers and cheeseburgers and tacos. And all. we enjoy farmers, but most of us aren't farmers. So for us, modern day stories are more about things like coffee or going to work or dealing with life, dealing with loss and all those types of things. And uh, that's why one of the things that I love that we do here at Victory at the movies uh, every summer where we take movies, stories with a redemptive message in it and teach a biblical lens through it. It's the same thing that Jesus would do. We do that every summer coming up in July. We'll be doing that again this year. Um, But um, Jesus would teach people this way. In fact, in Mark chapter 4, verse 33 and 34, it says this. It says, with many similar parables, or a parable is the Bible word for a story, this, this whole idea, a parable. Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So every time that Jesus would preach, he would use a parable, a story to relate what the kingdom of God was like. And I think it, it's interesting. People, people try to say a lot of things about Jesus' life, but when you really sum up what Jesus preached about, he preached about repentance and the kingdom of heaven. That's what he preached about. And so he's saying he's, he's teaching people what the kingdom of God would be like through the lens of a story that they can understand. But look at this. He says, but when he was alone with his disciples... He explained everything. So Jesus would teach the crowds. He would preach to the masses. We see that uh, many places where Jesus is preaching to 5,000 or uh, just large crowds of people teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. But then after the crowds would go home, he would gather his disciples in close, the 12 that traveled with him and said, okay, guys, now I'm going to explain to you a deeper truth. So long before Jesus ever uttered the words that we call the Great Commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples in every nation, right? Uh, Which, by the way, is where we get the vision for our church. At Victory, we exist to reach people with the life-giving message of Jesus and connect them to their purpose. That's the Great Commission, just kind of with some different language in it, right? We want to help people to know him, and we want to help people become a disciple of Jesus, to know him in a deeper way. And so 
Jesus, long before he ever said that, he's showing us how to do that. He's telling everyone he comes in contact with the crowds. He's preaching the kingdom of heaven. But then he's gathering his 12 disciples and teaching them how to grow in their faith, to deepen their roots in him. And, and I, I think that's so amazing. Jesus was so, uh, he was so strategic that way to show us before he even ever told us that we needed to do it. And so uh, he, he uses these stories to, to teach people the kingdom of heaven. And last week we started with the, what's called the parable of the sower. And if you're not familiar with that parable, uh, Jesus actually said this story, this parable of the sower was the key to understanding all of Jesus' teachings. Isn't that amazing? If Jesus said something was the key to understanding all of the other parables, do you think it's important for us to understand it? Okay, I got about half of y'all agreeing with me. And just FYI, this is an interactive experience. This is not like the movies where you sit back with your popcorn. Like you, sometimes you got to holler back at your boy, you know. Um, uh, praise the Lord. <laughs> so if you need a refresher on that, the parable of the sower we preached last week, shared that it's on our podcast, it's on our YouTube page, all that's available to you at no, no cost, it's free, make sure you check that out. But today I want to look at another parable, it's called the parable of the talents. Um, and if you have your Bible or maybe you have the free version Bible app, you can turn to Matthew chapter 25 verse 14. Um, uh, this week we got the church uh, a page on the YouTube, uh, not YouTube, I'm sorry, on the Version Bible app. Uh, you can now uh, follow the church on there, and in the days ahead we'll be having some more uh, good content on there, reading plans we'll be doing together and stuff like that. Um, so you can find us on Version as well if you have that on your device. Um, but while you're turning there to Matthew 25, let me give you some context for this parable that we're going to look at today because um, oftentimes we just hear these parables or maybe you've, you've known this parable but uh, out of the context of how Jesus is talking. So in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus has been teaching the crowds. He's been teaching the thousands of people in the temple complex, what, what we would consider church. So imagine Jesus preaching as the guest speaker in the temple, and he, he, he ends his message. He leaves the temple complex. He heads out of the city with his 12 disciples to a place called the Mount of Olives, and he sits down there at the top of the Mount of Olives, and he's looking back across Jerusalem, and the disciples start asking him, Jesus, what will the end times be like? What's going to be happening? And then they ask him this question, what will be the sign that you're going to be coming back? And these are questions people are still asking today. What are the end times going to be like? And when is Jesus coming back? Uh, Jesus would say a lot of in-depth things. He would give us a lot of details about the end times. And in fact, this week I encourage you, go read Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 25, and you can see what Jesus would say about the end times. And I believe we are living in the end times um, in fact, in the, uh, in the writings of the New Testament, they called that time 2,000 years ago, they called it the last days, the end times then. We are in the last of the last days. And so Jesus would explain all that. But one of the main things he taught his disciples as he was teaching them about the end times, he said that no one will know when. He said, only God the Father knows the day and the time. Jesus said he didn't know and the angels didn't know. Only God the Father knew the day and the time. And so he said, rather than spending all of your effort to figure out when, he said, let me teach you something better. He said, I want you just to live in a state of readiness. 
He said, you need to be prepared. Look what he said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. He said, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. Come on, anybody get that picture? Like, uh, hashtag nunchucks at midnight, you know what I'm saying? Like, I sleep good at night, but I'm ready. I got stuff all throughout my house. I'm ready to defend my family and my place, you know what I'm talking about? Like, hashtag angel protection party at my house, hashtag Chuck Norris who, you know what I'm talking about, come on. Jesus said we got to be ready. Like he, he said you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. You've got to be ready for Jesus to return. And G- Jesus would go on after saying that to, to teach four specific parables to his disciples, right? Now you have to remember, Jesus has preached to the masses already, and this is the discipleship moment. This is the lean-in moment where he leans in close with those who are near to him, and he says, I'm going to teach you the deeper truth. That let's go beyond the surface. I want you to have revelation understanding. And he goes and he teaches them these four specific parables, one about who is a faithful and wise servant. Then he teaches the second parable to them about the ten virgins and their lamps and the oil. Then he teaches them this parable we're going to look at today. It's called the parable of the talents. And then the fourth parable he teaches them in this moment, in this context, right, the uh, uh, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Now remember, he, they asked him, what will the end times be like and what will be the sign of your coming? How are we to know, Jesus, you're about to come back? And he said, you won't. You just need to live ready. You need to be ready, but this is what it will be like, right? It says this, parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. He said, again, it will be like, what is the it that he's talking about? He's talking about the end times. What will it be like in that time? What will the kingdom of heaven be like, right? Some translations call it the kingdom of heaven. Some say the end times. But we know from how Jesus has been talking and what the question was, he's talking about how the kingdom of God will be in the season. He said, it will be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants together and entrusts his wealth to them. This is a good place to pause and ask the obvious question. Whose wealth was it? Okay, it's an open book test. It says right there, even if if you don't have it on on the screen, whose wealth was it? It was the master's wealth, right? And and y'all are right, some of y'all are saying God, because in this story, we are the servants, God is the master. Okay, so the wealth that's being entrusted from the master, it's his, but he's giving control of his wealth to someone else. That's what's happening here, is that. And while Jesus is using money as the illustration in the story, I think it's important to point out that his illustration wasn't meant to be limited to finances. I believe God does entrust us with that. But rather, Jesus is trying to get us a picture of the abundance that God has entrusted us with while we're on this earth. It says he entrusted his wealth. He gave control of it to someone else. Uh, Recently, I went on a spring break trip with my family uh, down to Waco, Texas to see uh, Magnolia and the Silos and Chip and Joanna Gaines and their little uh, world they have down there. It was an amazing time. 
Um, and so we booked our flights, but I knew that while we were there, we would need to do some driving. So I also reserved a rental car. Come on. So we get there, we get on the plane, we land, we go to the rental car counter. We sign, you know, a bunch of agreements. Do you agree to all of these things? And sure, I need the car. You know, so you sign away, you pay, and they give you the keys to the car, and we drive away in our our nice little car. But question, who does the car belong to? The rental car company. But what has happened is they have entrusted that vehicle to me. They've given me the keys. They've given me control of it. I'm free to do whatever I want with that car. I just have to understand the repercussions because I have agreed to a written contract. So I have agreed to be a caretaker of this car. I can drive it wherever I want. I can do whatever I want with it as long as I take care of it and bring it back according to not my definition, but the definition of the owner, which is the company. Right? Okay. Now, if I choose to not bring the car back on time, who's going to pay extra? Me. If I choose to not take care of the car and bring it back dinged up, messed up, broken, or uh, you can rest assured the company ain't going to pay for it. They're going to hit me with a bill, right? Because I have agreed to be a caretaker of something that belongs to somebody else, even though when I'm driving it around, I'd be like, I'm going to get in my car and drive somewhere. I am in power and control of it, but it is still not mine. And listen, your life ain't yours. The Bible says you have been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus has bought you with a price. It says you are not your own. Even the money that we have used is not ours. Deuteronomy says it is God that gives you the strength in your body to even get wealth. So I know you thought you earned it and you might have gone to the job and worked it, but God gave you the brain to think about how you could figure out a skill to get a job. God gave you breath in your lungs to breathe, to get out of bed, to go to work, to get on time. God gave you a car and 350 gas to get it to your job. You know what I'm saying? Like there is nothing that we have that is our own. Everything that we have is on loan from God. And sometimes we just got to get back in, in, the, in the realization that it is his, and that there is a written agreement that he has given us about how to take care of everything that he has given us. It's called the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that is the book for me. Right? This is God's written agreement that we are meant to steward, to caretake everything that God has given us according to his priorities, his plans. And so, listen, you're free to live your life any way you want. You are free to use your resources, your time, your energy, any way you please. It's up to you, boo. Like, I'm not going to twist your arm. I'm not going to make you. But just understand what Jesus said would happen if we choose not to abide by the written agreement. Come on. So Jesus said the master entrusted his resources to his servants. And it says he went on a very long trip. To one servant he gave five bags of gold. Thank you, Jesus. To another he gave two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on a journey. Anybody notice that phrase, each according to his ability? 
It's an interesting phrase. So these weren't three random guys. Like growing up hearing the story, I always pictured it as a moment like this. Like everybody's gathered together and in front of like the, the master's like, mm, you get five bags, you get two, and you get one. But that's not what Jesus said happened here. These weren't random people. These were trusted servants. These were people the master had already seen their ability to manage because he knew their ability. He said, each according to their ability. The master had seen and specifically knew what they could handle. I think this is significant because sometimes we're asking God to increase us, to bless us, and we can't even handle what we currently have. We're overwhelmed by the tiniest little thing, and then we're like, oh, but God, give me more. Some of us don't have a budget and are broke, busted, and disgusted, but yet we're believing God for that million-dollar increase. Can we just be real in the house? And God is looking at us like, but you can't handle the little you got. God is not in the business of just wasting resource. God is looking for multiplication. See, we operate in an addition-subtraction kind of mentality. That's where the devil likes to bring people. The deception he wants to get people to slip in is that it's either addition or subtraction. And we think that when we give something or use something for the glory of God or are generous, that in our minds we're subtracting. Right, Because even the way our banking system works and, and balancing our checkbook, that's how we do it. Well, now I need to write a debit line on there and, and, and remove that out of there. It's a subtraction. But in God's economy, it doesn't work that way. God's economy is all about multiplication. That's his desire. And so we've got to begin to get a different view of this. right? So here he's saying he's entrusted resource according to their ability to manage. So rather, I wonder if we just begin to increase our ability to manage things according to God's priorities, if we'd begin to see God entrust us with more. Could it be that he hasn't entrusted us with what we've been believing and crying out for just because we've been asking for it and actually rather than believing, we've just been throwing a spiritual temper tantrum? What if we just began to put ourselves in a place to grow our abilities, to be mentored, to, to be strengthened, to just whatever level we're currently on, become a master at it? You know, rather than just demanding that we get more influence, give me more of this, or we're like just master the place you are, and it will make room for you to grow, right? A, a great way to realize what your priorities are, because it's, it's, it's easy to say, are, are we managing what God has given us according to his priorities or our priorities? So how do we know whose priorities we're living according to you? Well, one of the best ways that I know to answer that question, because... You know, if we're honest and or to just come up and ask each other, like, our hearts are deceitful. That's what the Bible says. Above all else, like, don't follow your heart, you know. Uh, so when we answer that question, oh, yeah, I live for God's priorities. Oh, really? Okay. I love having that conversation with people and they're talking about how generous they are, but they never give. Or they choose where they give and when they give and how they give. You know, or, you know, the, the, you know, I'm serving God, but they never serve in his house or serve his people. It's easy for us to be deceived thinking we're doing things because we want to see our lives through a certain view. But the truth is we all have blind spots. And sometimes we are our own blind spot. We can't even see because we've become deceived by some things. So one of the best ways to really reveal what priorities we're living according to is check your calendar. Check your bank account, your, sta your bank statement. Because the, the, the things that you give the most of yourself 
to and, and the most frequently to, those are your priorities. So if you're giving the most of yourself to all the entertainment things or whatever, then entertainment's your priority. If you're giving the most of your schedule to whatever it is, to be there, to be this, or to be that, like if God is just an optional thing on your schedule, then he's probably not priority on your schedule. I love you. That's why I'm willing to say it to you. You know, like if God is priority in your finances, you want him to be making deals for you and things happening and things flowing, but he's never a priority in your bank account, like then he's probably not priority. Come on. Is this good? So he gave one servant five. He gave one servant two, one servant one. Now different translations call these bags of gold. Some call it a talent. Um, But basically a a talent of gold, uh, what was considered a bag of gold in that day and time, the common unit of measurement that that can be traced back, a, a talent, a bag of gold would have weighed about 71 pounds is uh, what, what is commonly accepted from that day and time. 71 pounds. That's, how many would like five 71 pounds of gold? Uh, I, I would receive it. If you, you know, don't want to give them my number. Uh, for perspective, uh, gold in today's market, as I looked up at the end of the market close on Friday, was an, an ounce of gold is going for $1,923 an ounce. I did the math. The guy who got five bags of gold roughly got $10.9 million. It's a lot of zeros, baby. Come on, somebody. The guy who got two bags or two talents in our day and time would roughly equal $4.3 million. And the guy who got one bag, one talent, received $2.1 million. And the crazy thing is, sometimes like we feel so bad for the guy with one talent, right? Oh, he only got one talent of, you know, I mean, Jesus must have been disappointed in him or just must not have thought he could handle very much. Or, oh, if he could have got more talent. Listen, he wasn't lacking. (laughs) You know, how many would receive $2.1 million today? If you would not like to receive that, please give them my number. I will gladly receive that for you. You know, we'll put it to work for the kingdom. We're going to build a building. We're going to build some more churches and schools in Africa. You know what I'm talking about, like. Listen, the guy with one talent was not lacking. It's just, just perspective sometimes. Uh, and, and, and let's get a little more perspective. I'm not sure if you know the, st- the statistics of back here in Orlando, but the average median income in our city of about 2.5 million people is $51,757. Not too shabby. Come on, somebody. That's the average household income across our city. But then you drill in a little deeper here in East Orlando. Let's go east side. Oh, that was sad. <laughs> Got to represent. Come on. East side, let me hear you. East Orlando. The, a- <laughs> the average median income here in East Orlando, we kick it up a notch, baby. You know, we get, it gets up to 82,694. Come on, Jesus. We're doing good on the east side. Avalon Park said Amen. So I did some more math. The, the average working career of an adult is roughly 40 years. So if a person works 40 years and, you, and they average out over those 40 years, 
$50,000 each year, like just the average, which is below the median income in our city, below the median income in our area. If you average $50,000 over a working career of 40 years, that person will have $2.1 million flow through their hands. Most of us will have even more flow through, that, through our hands. Come on, look at somebody beside you and say, what's up, millionaire? Come on, and if you are a single person and they are a single person and moderately attractive, be like, how about lunch? Come on, trying to help you out. Sometimes we need that perspective shift because we're here praying God like, God, I don't have enough. God, I just, I just don't know, like, if I had what they had, if I just had, you know, their influence, or if I just had more of this, then I could. And God is like, you a millionaire. You have everything you need. And, and we're just like, well, I don't have it all at once. Like, what more do we need? We have everything. Everything that we need. The reality is, is that God is entrusting us with millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of hours and minutes, strength, breath, everything that we need. Why do we have a problem when it comes to tithing and giving, giving over and above the tithe? Why do we have a problem serving regularly, committing to serving, following up on our commitment? God has entrusted us with so much so much. I don't know about y'all, but I don't want to get to the end of my life and stand before the maker of heaven and earth, the one who entrusted me with millions and all the time that I needed and give an account for my life because the Bible says we will each stand before him, give an account. I don't want to be on the bare minimum side when he says, what did you do with what I gave you? I want to be on the side that says, God, the, the maximum percentage that I could possibly do was given and, and used to advance the gospel of Jesus across this earth. Like, that's the side I'm going to be on. That's the side this church is going to be on. Come on. We're going to have to get the end in mind. See, that's where our perspective gets off is when we live with the now in mind. We've got to begin to live with the end in mind, that the end is not here on this earth. Like, the destination for us is heaven. Like, that's where we're going to be. And so God is not giving us more than we can handle because it will crush us. He's watching to see if our ability can grow. What can we take care of if we can manage things according to his priorities? Back to the story of verse 16. The man who received the five bags of gold, $10.9 million, baby. It says he went at once, put his money to work, and gained five more bags. That's the multiplication right there. 11 million to 22. Let's go. So also the man with two bags, 4.3 million, gained two more. So he's up to almost 7 million. That's multiplication. He didn't just add one, like he multiplied it. So, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now question, which one of these guys would you want managing your retirement fund? I'd take you the one, the five or the two, you know what I'm saying? I don't know anyone who would pick the guy who was given the one talent. Why? Like, we get it in, in that light, don't we? Because, he, like, there was no gain. There was nothing. There was, it just was stagnant. We get it in that regard. But then when it comes to our lives, 
our talents, our abilities, all that God has graciously entrusted to us, then we get a little spicy and feel a little certain kind of way that God would expect a return on what he's trusted us with. Listen, God is all about ROI, return on investment. And it's not just that you would have enough for your own self. Like, of course, God wants you to have what you need. That's why he's given you abundance. He's given you more than what you need so that you could be a blessing. And yet, I, I mean, more and more people who are demanding more of God but are living, acting, and believing like the one-talent guy. Verse 19, after a long time, let me hear you say a long time. The master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. There will be a day where we all stand before God, and he's going to ask, what did you do with all that I entrusted you with? He settled an account. The man who'd received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. That's amazing, isn't it? Honestly, this is my prayer for you. I'll pray this regularly uh, for you guys that when you stand before the Lord and give an accounting of your life and all that God entrusted you with, that you would hear those words. Man, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, I want that for you so bad. I think it's interesting. As you read how the master responded, the servant is bringing back not just what he was entrusted with, but he's bringing back the multiplication. Like he doesn't even ever consider it his. He said, I took this and, and I made it more. Here it is. He just gladly gives it back. But it never says the master took it from him, does it? No, the master said, oh, you brought a return on what I've entrusted you with. Let me give you some more. He gave him even more than what he already had. See, God is not in the business of diminishing. God is in the abundance business, the overflow business. He is the God of more than enough. Verse 22, we see the guy with the two bags of gold came. Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Same response. Why did the guy that, that brought $22 million back to the master and the guy who brought $7 million back to the master, why did they get the same reward and the same response? Was it because they brought the equal amounts back? No, 22 million is a whole lot more than seven. You know what I'm saying? But they got the same reward. They got the same result from the master, not because they were equal gifts, but because they both brought a return on what they, they, they both had they invested, they both took care of, it, were, uh, managed what they had been entrusted with according to the priorities of the master. Verse 24, then the man who had received the one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man. He's a religious person, right? I knew you had a lot of rules, and I tried to keep them all. I did my best, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seeds. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. 
See, here it is, everything that belongs to you. See, God, like I, I did my best, God. I, I tried, you know, uh, I, I memorized some things. Uh, I tried to come to church. I tried to be a good person. I tried to say some prayers. And it's this person who knows the Lord. They got that heavenly fire insurance, you know, going to heaven. But they're afraid. They, they don't, you know, they barely pray. They don't, uh, you know, prefer not to commit. You know, it's the, they just bury whatever they have in the ground. I'll, I'll take care of this, God, and I'll just, I'll just give it back to you one day. It's wanting to live safe. See, it's that person who they're more concerned about how it affects them than they are about taking a risk to step out in faith to say, okay, God, like whatever you put in my hand is for your glory. Like stepping out in faith will require risk. It looks risky. Living in fear looks risky. But it's just a different response to what's been put in our hand. And this passage, by the way, is one reason why I believe that God did not create us, save us, redeem us from our sins, to sit comfortably in a Christian country club like the Frozen Chosen. You are not a bump on a log in the church. That's not why God did all that. God did all that, not so you could bury in the ground what he gave you and just simply give it back to him. No, he, he did all that. He sent Jesus to rescue you, to save you, because he loves you extravagantly. And then he, he loves people who are far from him. Jesus, is, uh, uh, he's obsessed with lost, his lost kids. You know, if you have four kids and you go to the store and you get back in the car to go home and you have three, you're not like, oh, oh, well, 75% is good. Let's go home. That's how you end up on the news. <laughs> Please don't end up on the news that way. No, what would you do? You would get back out of the car and go find the one who is lost. That's why Jesus came. He said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Those who are far from God, who don't have salvation, who don't know him. That's what we're called to do, to make a difference in this world, in the lives of people, for the glory of God, to help people to know God in a deeper way. Look how the master responded to this person, verse 26. He said, you wicked and lazy servant. Wow. You knew that I harvest where I had not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, you should have at least put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Like, like you should have done something, anything, done anything with it. Take, so he says, take the bag of gold from him, from the one and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have abundance. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is strong. It should, it should rattle our cage a little bit. It should put the fear of God in us, you know, because... It's a sobering principle, but what if this principle that Jesus is teaching, because remember the context. What, what is the kingdom of God like? What is the end times? God, how will we know? And he said, like, there's going to be these people. There's going to be the five. There's going to be the two. There's going to be the one. The principle is, what if we live our own way according to our own priorities? Then we run the risk of losing it all and being cast into darkness. That's what Jesus' words, not mine. If if what if God removes from us the thing that we don't manage and steward according to his priorities? What we do with what we have matters so much. God has entrusted us with so much time, strength, knowledge, freedom, money, family, salvation, healing, hope, 
peace. Come on, do we have to keep going? And, and yet we have more access to more Bible knowledge, more teaching, more podcasts, more things than ever before in human history. And we have more Christians than ever who don't even know the basics of the Bible. We have more people who don't even know who they are in Christ. We have more people than ever who refuse to get involved. We have more people than ever who don't know how to pray, aren't even really concerned. Like, if you don't know how to pray, it's okay. But there are ways to figure it out. Like, that's one of the things I love about groups that we have here at the church. Not so that we can just say, look how many groups we have. No, but because it's a place where we can come together. I mean, we were at men's group this last week on Wednesday night at Panera Group. And just the depth of the conversation about places we are struggling and things that we were learning. Man, you can't get that other ways. And yet, here Jesus is teaching us this principle. And yet, we're just, we just rather, so many would rather just kick back and be like, oh, that's great, thanks. We'll just go on about our way. Meanwhile, the world around us is in chaos and every day people are dying and going to hell. And we have the answer. His name is Jesus. You're free to live any way you want. Just recognize what Jesus said would happen if we choose to use what God has entrusted us for our own priorities. We choose to bury it in the ground. Whatever we want, we will risk losing it all and being cast out of his presence. The good news is, if you find yourself in that place today, come on, we serve the God of restoration. We serve the God of mercy and grace. That's what his grace does. His grace is an empowerment to do something we could not do on our own. So on our own, like, we don't have the ability to steward it well. But then he gives us this thing, the thing to steward, and then he gives us the grace and the ability to do it. And then when we mess up, he gives us his mercy to cover where we messed it up so we could be restored. Come on, God is so good right God has put something in your hand and he did that so you could utilize it for his purposes to multiply it and so how do we do this how do we live this way so that we end up come on I want to end up in that place where I, where I hear those words and where you hear those words well done good and faithful servant I don't want it to be said of anyone that that, that I know that I had a, a moment to speak with where he speaks to them like the servant with the one the wicked and lazy servant so how do we live in such a way where we don't end up like the wicked and lazy servant. I want to give us three things real quick today. The first one is this. To live as a good steward, we need to start now. Or uh, Nike says it this way, just do it. Get into action. Get off, like put me in the game, coach. I'm ready to get in. You know, like just start now. Just get involved now. Some of the most powerful and deeply spiritual moments we can experience come through moments and steps of small obedience to what God has spoke to us. It's just that many people would rather sit back and wait for the, for the perceived miraculous and the perceived big moments as if that's the only way that God moves. I've just found and learned that when I'm willing to lean in and the small and the quiet, the moments that no one else sees and that doesn't get any fanfare and nobody posts about on Instagram, it's those moments that God builds something in me and actually creates another avenue, another open door for me to step through to be able to use my gifts even more. It's those moments most of the time where I get to be part of making a difference in somebody else's life and the more small moments that I'm willing to step through of obedience when God is leading me and directing me the moments of encouragement the moments of, of prayer when I text somebody hey I'm praying for you today and nobody else ever knows about it they may not even uh, be open to it or whatever but God puts them on my heart and I'm praying for them and the more and more that I'm open to that then God begins to expand me even more because I've been obedient with whatever he's put in my hand 
I think that's the goal, is not to just be whatever. No, I'm just going to, whatever is, I'm going to be obedient with whatever God trusts me with. If it's a moment to pray for somebody, if it's, if it's my tax return and God puts something on my heart, I'm gonna, like I'm going to give that or, or whatever it is. If it's a service opportunity, I'm going to step into it. I mean, that's how, that's how I'm in the place I am today. I'm not uh, serving, able to serve in the seat as your pastor because I'm the greatest preacher ever or because I'm the greatest pastor there ever is. I'm, I'm probably not. I know guys who are better pastors than me or whatever else, but I was available in the moment. I had followed the steps of obedience when, when we moved here. Uh, we were getting ready to move of our founding pastors, pastors Caleb and Sarah. They just, they asked us to move and they were like, hey, uh, would you move and be part of the team? Many of you know the story. Like, we can't promise you anything. I'm not giving you a job. Can't promise you a position on the team. I just, can you just commit to be on the team? Like, but I, you know, I'm like, okay, yeah. Like, that's good. We're just, we'll do anything you need. Uh, just, just please don't put us in children's church. <laughs> And so, you know, it's like, I'll clean toilets or whatever, but just, just not there. And so we get here, we get settled in, we're having meetings, planning, preparation, uh, getting things ready, getting supplies, uh, meeting in Pastor Caleb's house at the time. Kids were upstairs, uh, moms and dads downstairs, just doing all this stuff. And I remember uh, it, uh, each parent was kind of rotating out, watching the kids while the adults were meeting downstairs. And one, um, one Sunday was Pastor Heather's turn upstairs with the kids. And she came home from the meeting that day, just, just a little like, just something was like, just like bothering her a little bit. Um, and uh, there was, I was like, what, what's going on? She was like, one of the other moms was like, just talking about the time with the kids and how it's just babysitting and how she couldn't wait for it to be over so she could do something important. And she was like, that's not right. Like, this is not babysitting. This is like, we have one hour with these kids a week. One hour to implant the word of God into them, to teach them who they are, to call the gifts of God out of them, to equip them and empower them for the, the other hours that they experience throughout the week where they're constantly being uh, onslaught from the enemy and everything else trying to define who they are. We have one hour. This is not a waste of time. This is the most important time. And so we just prayed about it, you know, and uh, I, I remember that afternoon, Pastor Sarah called my wife. And uh, they were just talking on the phone. We were sitting in our living room, uh, just on, just in different chairs. And as I was just sitting there watching, I didn't know what they were talking about. Um, and I just, I just looked at my wife, Pastor Heather, and I was like, "Hey, whatever she asks you, just say yes." <laughs> I didn't know she was saying, "Would you guys lead the children's ministry?" <laughs> it's probably a good thing I didn't know. But I, there's open doors. There's moments of of obedience if we will just say yes can you just say yes before you even know what it is you know like and it was those two and a half years like I didn't go to school for preaching I went to school to be a rock and roll star you know talking about I was working as a web developer like that was my profession and yet in a moment when God was ready to advance the vision of our church from one leader to the next See, in moments of transition, things will either thrive and move forward, or they will wither and die. And I wasn't the most qualified, I wasn't the most whatever, but I was the one that was there and that was faithful and had been there and hadn't given up. And I had said yes when other people had said no. See, your yes is powerful. 
Be careful what you give it to. Some of us are giving our yes to everything. And then when God comes, it's not that, listen, it's not that our hearts are bad and like, like, like we're like, no, God, I won't. But most of us just can't because we're strapped. We're strapped financially. We're strapped schedule-wise. We're strapped ability-wise. And we have just no energy left. And it's not that we're wrong or bad people or bad Christians. It's just that we've given our yes to everything else. And God hasn't been priority. And maybe that's why God brought you here today. Like, let's say this word all together. It's two letters. No. Okay, that was good. Let's try a little more time with a little more like. Say no. no. Oh, you t- come on. That's good. Give your neighbor a high five. Come on. Yeah. Some things we just need to say no to. I, I love what Pastor Craig Rochelle from Life Church says. He says, you need a, a to-don't list before you need a to-do list. Do you have a, a to-don't list for your money? Do you have a to-don't list for your schedule? Do you have a to-don't list for things I will look at? Come on, we're getting real in the house. We're going to start today. See, the lie that we believe is that if I give of myself, if I use my talents, if I commit to something, schedule something, then I'm going to have less. And that's just not true. In God's economy, it's multiplication. But anything multiplied by zero is zero. So if there's nothing of your life that's being brought into God's economy, the results will still be zero. We've got to begin to put ourselves into action according to his priorities. Begin to steward well what he's given us. So let me just tell you, just do something. Put yourself in the position to grow, to be trained, to be mentored, to start living today for the purpose of God. Something that is greater than yourself. Over time, listen, here's what will happen. God will stretch you. It will cause you to stretch beyond where you currently are. It will lead you to a place you never could have got to on your own. And you might even find yourself living out your God-given dream. Come on. Some of y'all are looking at me kind of crazy right now, so let me say it this way. What are the opportunities God has put in your hands right now? I say opportunities, not dream destinations. I've met many Christians who are are sitting back and be like, God's just going to do whatever he's going to do, and then I'll just be there. Well, there's some truth to that. But God's waiting on you to be part of the story, to get in the game, to get involved, right? We're not just waiting for one day, I'm just going to show up in my dream destination. No, your dream destination is made up of hundreds of thousands of small, little insignificant moments that other people don't see and most people aren't willing to do that produce the big results that everybody wants. But without all the stuff along the way, you might not even get there. We're not just waiting for a preferred destination. We're maximizing what we have now, what's been put in my hands that I can use for God's glory now. There's opportunities all around you, all around you to live in purpose if we're willing to act on them. Here's the next key. Uh, don't make fear-based decisions. If you want to live as a wise steward of God, you can't make fear-based decisions. What did, what did the wicked servant say to the master in the story? He said, I was afraid, and then my decision came. I was afraid, so I buried it in the ground. It was a fear-based decision. See, our decisions are based by one of two things, fear or the word of God. Fear or faith. That's what's driving your decisions. I've just learned the hard way in my life, and I've seen it in so many, that when we make fear-based decisions, it never produces the goodness of God. 
It always leads us in a way that we don't intend to go. Fear-based decisions are, are usually rooted in the situation, meaning that you make your decision based on what you can see, on the circumstance, or on the lack, or on the feelings, on the emotions. It's like the person is judging their ability to overcome. They're judging their ability for God's promises to take place in their life based on the situation, the circumstance. Can I tell you, God's promises are not based on your circumstance. God's promises are not based upon uh, your background or how you grew up or the family you're in, or how much money you have in the bank account. God's promises are based on Him and His Word and what He has said. So we've got to begin to see with eyes of faith. Fear-based decisions are also have an element of the crowd pressure. You know, there's always a crowd, and the crowd will not be short on opinions, excuses, problems, escapes, complaints, false solutions, false idols. But listen, wisdom from the crowd is seldom wisdom. You can't make decisions, faith-based decisions on what God has said when you're consulting the crowd. If you want to make a decision on what God's Word said, you need to, hey, consult Him. Consult His Word. You know, it's also a good place to say the crowd is usually not a crowd. It's usually one or two people. But it sounds like when people says everyone thinks or we all agree or everyone's leaving or we you know so and so thinks everyone else is doing this or you always you never it's seldom you always it's seldom everyone it's usually one or two people so what i love to do and what i've found is so effective is just like let's just name it who is everyone if you're not willing to put a name on it it's just gossip it's just we bought into the fear-based moment no we're just going to uh, put a name on it and if they're talking let's just go talk to them one-on-one -on -one, rather than entertaining the gossip. Fear-based decisions also have a perceived time pressure, right? The, the time, oh, I, I gotta make it now or I'm just, gonna be, I'm just gonna be without. Listen, it's seldom now or never. What does the Bible teach us about how hearing from God wait on the Lord? Be patient, be still and know that He is God. So when there's this perceived time pressure, man, that perceived time, if I don't do it now, then I'm just going to miss out. I'm going to, what other? No, 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 no. I'm going to allow God to speak to me because I need his word in my life, not everything else. I don't need the fear-based decision in me, right? I'm not going to force his hand. I'm going to wait for the right time of God. Scripture says, don't become weary in doing what is good for at the right time. Everybody say the right time. You will reap a harvest if you do not give up the right time. Fear-based decisions have this kind of perceived danger to them, right? Isn't it funny how our minds run down the worst-case scenario? Anybody else ever, like, coughed? <clears throat> oh, my gosh, is that COVID? I think I'm going to, I can't breathe. I'm going to die. They're going to intubate me. <laughs> Just me? Okay. Praise the Lord. You can pray for your pastor then. It's just the reality of life sometimes, the pressure's coming at us, the crowd, all this kind of stuff. And then what happens is the danger, the fear starts to look bigger than the promise of God. It starts to look bigger than it really is. And listen, there is no fear, there is no worry, there is no economic collapse that is bigger or greater or more powerful or have more say-so in your life than the Word of God. God's promises are yes and amen for you. That means in your life, God has said, I will do it. 
Amen. We will see it through. And then our side is to come alongside and just to continue to believe in it, to continue to walk in it. God, it looks like the economy is rough, but I'm going to continue to believe in you. God, I, I don't know where the provision is going to come, but I, I've been faithful to bring my tithes and my offerings into your house. And I know you've opened the windows of heaven over me to pour out blessing I cannot contain. God, I'm really worried about this meeting at work today, but you said if I would pray and give you thanks and everything, that your peace would guard my heart and guard my mind. Come on, are we getting this today? We can make faith-based decisions, but we've got to hear from Him. We'll stop making the fear-based decisions. And I, one of the last parts of fear-based decisions is isolation. We seldom make good decisions, wise decisions when we're isolated, when it's just us. We need the wisdom of God to make decisions. One of the ways that um, uh, I was taught to grow in wisdom because I don't know about y'all, but I just, I need, I need wisdom, you know, my life so badly. And so uh, I read a chapter of Proverbs every day. Proverbs is considered the wisdom book of the Bible. And so whatever day of the month it is, I just read that chapter of Proverbs. And I was talking with one of my friends this week, George, and he's doing the same thing. He's like, I'm doing it two or three times a day. And I was like, praise the Lord. We need some wise people in our house. Come on, we, this, this, like, I believe this is one of the tactics of the devil to get people out of church, get a chip on their shoulder, unteachable, offended, church hopping. It boils down to they got isolated in a moment. They let their feelings override everything and no one could say anything to them and everything overwhelmed them. It feels dangerous. It felt like I had to do something now. Some, some external source was saying, well, this is what everyone is saying. And all of a sudden, fear-based decision produced not the goodness of God in their lives. And now they're isolated, they're separated, wondering, God, why can't I feel you? Where are you? What's going on? Why is everything falling apart? Well, God didn't move. God didn't go anywhere. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, so it's not like he can even leave you. So, man, it's getting in the place. This is why it's so important to be rooted and planted in a house, in the house, in the church of God. This is why, like, we just decided in our family, long before we ever became pastors, like, when the doors are open, we're just going to be there. Like, why? Because this is our place. Come on, can I just tell you this is your place? Look at somebody and say, Miss Edges, this is your place. Look at the person on the other side and say, this is my place. Yeah. Come on, this is your place. And it's just like when you go home, it's your house, isn't it? And... Uh, <laughs> You know, like, we're not just going to walk in and just, like, just trash everything or just take everything. Like, no, but we're going to treat this house. God has allowed us to be in his house. We're going to treat this place like it's the best place. Like, like we have some skin in the game. Like, we have a stake to make this the best house that there is, the house of God. Because this is our place. Here's the last one today. We're going to live as wise servants, managing well what God has given us. We've got to stop comparing. You know, the amounts that was given to the servants only matters on this side of the story. I used to think that God gave it to you them in front of all of each other, you know, and like just standing shoulder to shoulder. You get five, you get two, you get one. Can you imagine like, what? why did he? But that's not the, we don't know that that was the scene. It could have been individually. Like, but to the master who's entrusting the wealth, the amount didn't matter. What mattered was each to their own ability. What mattered to the master was how good at were they at managing, according to my priorities, what I'm giving to them. 
That's what mattered to him. It only, the, the amounts that were given to them only mattered to us when we allowed jealousy or greed or, or envy or all of that stuff. The comparison, well, why do they have more? If I was just, you know, if I could sing like Elena, well, sure, then I would serve. Or if I could just, if I could just be the one with the microphone, then I could serve. Or if everybody knew what, what like we get in this like comparison thing, when that doesn't matter, it was just like, what are the opportunities that I have? Like, that's the place. And if you, you, a person will always be miserable in their life and in their calling and in their purpose if they're always looking at what they have or wishing for what they had rather than just maximizing, growing, and developing whatever it is God has given you. You want, if you need to break the spirit of jealousy in comparison off your life, here's the key. Develop an attitude of gratitude. It's just plain and simple. Let's get to our feet today. Gratitude is not an issue of how much we make or what we have. It's an issue of what we're willing to give and release from our hands. So, Lord, I just thank you in this moment right now. Thank you for being here, speaking to us today. God, I thank you that your word is life, that it's alive and powerful. Thank you for listening to the Victory Orlando Church podcast. We hope today's message helps you take another step closer to knowing God and finding freedom through his word. 